On this episode of App Talk, we discuss the aviation incidents that have occurred in the past two weeks and delve into the fortunes of major carriers in the Middle East. And we're joined again by Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren to discuss vintage aviation advertising and strapping rockets to a convair? Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Avtalk. I am Ian Pechnik here back in the United States with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, I'm back in New York. I'm back home. <laughs> you had to think about that one for a second. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a number of hops along the way since we last spoke, but um, I'm home. And you actually made it back from France, and then you were home for what, four and a half, five minutes? Maybe, and then maybe ten. you were off... Maybe ten, and then and then you were off to Seattle. Yeah, uh, I flew for, for uh, Lyon to Dublin to JFK on Aer Lingus. Took the subway back home to my apartment. Was here for about twelve hours, and went straight back to JFK and flew JetBlue Mint out to Seattle for a special event that I guess we'll talk about in a little bit. We'll, we'll talk about well, – yeah, we'll definitely talk about that one in a little bit uh, towards the end of the show. But I did want to mention the fact that you made it without succumbing to any air traffic control strikes that we, we talked about in the last episode and we're recording on the 22nd of May in the midst of a French national strike. Of course so we are. you made it out just in time. So all my flights miraculously were like perfectly on time, no issues with any of them. The only issue I had along the way was there was a train strike in France because of course there was. So I had to take a bus over the Alps, which was not great instead of a train. But in the grand scheme of things, flying through France in the summer and that's the worst that happened, fine, I'll take it. You did okay for yourself. Yeah, not too shabby. Yeah. So let's – a lot has happened in the past two weeks and a lot of it not very good at all. The most recent is the a crash of a 737-200. A global air 737-200 crashed while operating for Cubana. And at last we heard 111 of the 113 people on board ha had died. So a something that – you know, still trying to understand what exactly happened because it, it crashed – pretty much right after takeoff. Yeah, it barely made its way outside of the property of the airport from what I saw. And we unfortunately still don't really know much more than we did immediately after the incident, which isn't much. There was a huge amount of misinformation and bad information because let's be honest, this was coming out of Cuba. So it, it's one of the most difficult places in the world to get accurate news from. And at some point, uh, it was reported as Cubana's 737. Well, they don't have any 737s. And then it was reported by state media as being a Blue Panorama 737 who was wet leasing their aircraft to Cubana, but it wasn't them. And it turned out to be this 737-200 uh, from this little tiny Mexican charter and leasing company that I had never heard of. But since then, in the last day or two, the Mexican authorities have completely grounded that airline. It didn't have a, a large fleet to begin with. I think the, the total fleet before the accident was three aircraft. So now, I mean, with two aircraft left, they're, they've grounded those two. It was a very interesting time because we didn't have any data after the crash. I mean, usually there's something, but with, I mean, the fact that it was a, in Cuba, so we have very, very limited coverage in Cuba because there are, are no ground-based receivers in Cuba at this point, something that we're extremely interested in, in, in getting 
if it's possible. But also, this was a, a 737-200. 40-year-old um, aircraft. Yeah, yeah. First delivered uh, to Piedmont Airlines in July of 1979. So obviously, the, the Modest transponder, not ADSP equipped, but it, it did have its Modest transponder. But we obviously didn't, didn't receive any data from the aircraft, especially because it happened so so close to, to takeoff that there wasn't time to, to gain altitude for any data to, to come in. So that's where a lot of the, the confusion came in, especially because we're going off you know reports. And, and the information that kind of came out first was that an airport worker had told some guy who was standing there taking pictures that it was an American plane. So then the first question was, did they mean a United States plane or an American Airlines plane? Because there were two American Airlines flights scheduled to depart around that time. So, I mean, it started very confusing and just got even more confusing from there. Yeah. So we'll see, I guess, what happens over the course of the investigation. But this is a 40-year-old 737-200. Who knows if the flight recorders were even functional? I, I hope they were, but we've heard nothing about them since uh, the incident. But hopefully they get some some knowledge and can find out what happened. I guess a little background on Cuban aviation is for obvious reasons, embargoes and all that political stuff. Cubana does not have many modern aircraft. They really struggle to keep their fleet going. They have a modest fleet of somewhat modern – what are they? Uh, the IL-86. Yeah, that's it. The, I, the Aleutians, the, the little regional jets, the high-wing twin-engine aircraft. But they've had such a hard time getting spare parts from them. They've had to cannibalize some and the rest of the fleet has been pretty much grounded. So they've scrambled to lease aircraft from wherever they can and this flight happened to be operated by at least 737-200, which is kind of, in my mind, a sign of desperation. If you're leasing a 40-year-old aircraft like that, you just simply don't have a choice in the matter, whether it's financial or availability. But really sad to see that news out of Cuba. Yeah. I mean, it, and I'm sorry, it was Illusion 96, the, their long-haul fleet. I'm not talking about the Aleutians. Those are not modern aircraft at all. I'm talking about the high wing twin engine, the uh, TU. Uh, they, they've got uh, AN 158s. That's it. That's what I'm Th talking about. The, the okay. Antonov AN 158. That's it. Those are those are somewhat modern, capable aircraft that they have a bunch of in their fleet, but since they can't get spare parts, they can't operate them. And unfortunately, they're and, grounded. Yeah, they also have the ATR 42. Uh, singular one, and then the 75. Right, right. Uh, so they, Cubana is supposed to have, they ordered 10 AN-158s. They have six in their fleet now, but unfortunately, they are all grounded. They have one ATR, four Aleutian 96s that may or may not actually be flying, and that's pretty much it. So, Pretty much anything operated by Cubana is is leased at this point. They had been doing a, a number of wet leases, or both, yeah, a number of wet leases. It was uh, for Nolanor was doing some Blue Panorama and and this the the Global Air. So I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So it's you know their operation is how they you know continue the airline, keep the airline going is rather fascinating to me. In, in a better ending, in what could have been a, a very bad ending as well. A, a Sichuan Airlines flight lost the first officer, the right side windshield. It failed and left the aircraft. 
and on its way out, damaged the flight control unit, which controls the autopilot. So the captain hand flew the plane. This happened near Chengdu, and they they turned around, stayed higher than they would have liked to because you don't want to fly into a mountain. Good and advice, Ian. Eventually, yeah, it, it's two weeks in a row with this, uh, you know, the good advice here. And then, you know, successfully landed it and minor injuries to the, the first officer and a member of the flight crew. So a pretty, I mean, it's happened before, you know, windshield failures and things like that, but just the windshield just completely failing and leaving the aircraft is amazing to me. Yeah. And if you look at the pictures, it, it looks like the air pressure pretty much nearly sucked out the autopilot control panel. I don't know what the technical name for that panel is, but it was pretty much nearly sucked out of the aircraft and substantially damaged and inoperable. And I'm looking at the, the track on, on flight radar and they somehow managed to still train, change the transponder code to 7700 and it shows up that the little icon turns red. So through all of that, yeah. they were even able to accurately change their transponder code, which I kind of find amazing. They, they did that because they couldn't use the radio to communicate. The sound, you know, I mean, you're, you're traveling at a high rate of speed, you know, 500 miles an hour or so. And it's tough to hear the radio in your car when the windows are down on the highway. I can't imagine how loud it is when you have an open window and you're flying a plane. Yeah. And they were at uh, 32,000 feet when this happened. And even though they started their descent, the ground speed never really – it fluctuated, but it didn't change substantially for, for quite a period of time. So I can't imagine what that must have been like in that flight deck. But thankfully, they were skilled pilots. They managed the situation and they landed safely. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it'll be – Another investigation that we're we're keeping tabs. I feel like we're keeping tabs on a lot of investigations this year. I hope you have this all written down. I miraculously have the the do I do have this all written down, but I mean, it's just you know one. It seems like one after another, and, and I know that you know statistically speaking, it's we're kind of within the range of normal here, but it just it just feels a little more um, sort of closer together, I guess, these days. But let's close out. Our incident report, I guess, is the you know the first half I of the don't show like today. This segment. Yeah, I don't either. I, I'd rather talk about you know other stuff that isn't these things. But luckily, no one got hurt in Istanbul. Just some when, pride, and I think. Just some pride, and well, and and an airplane, an Asiana A three thirty was taxiing in Istanbul, and a Turkish Airlines A three twenty one was. It's unclear, I guess. To me, I haven't found whether or not it was pushed back too far or had not pulled it in far enough. It was where it was supposed to be. Exactly. It was in the it was in the taxi lane and the A330 basically just lopped off the tail. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, in all these incidents where aircraft have uh close calls on the ground at, which happens routinely at JFK, you usually see some um some pieces fall off or a winglet chopped off, but this was the entire freaking tail of the aircraft basically or a real just lopped off just, and, and kind of flopped over just flopped over and then that, and, that and of course that. we'll put we'll put photos in the show notes because i mean it was it was one of those things istanbul is a great spotters airport and they have some great spotting locations and and so of course i i went on jet photos right away to see how quickly people could get something uploaded and it, it was like an hour later that there were photos and, and you could see just this tail just kind of hanging off where it was not supposed to be 
Yeah, there, there was a lot but, of, of, of blaming, I guess, when this first happened. Yeah. Like, how could the pilot do that? Well, if, if you're the A330 pilot, you're following the center line. There's not supposed to be anything in your way. Right. Yeah, it was it – was, I mean, and if you look at pictures of the A330, the pictures that I've seen, there's very little damage just at the wingtip. I mean, it's just at the wingtip. Yeah. I mean, it, it's ridiculously amount of damage, but my favorite incident is still the A380 versus CRJ at JFK from like oh, 10 years ago at this point. That was – that's still by far my favorite. For those of you who don't know, we'll, we'll find video or, or a link to – and put it in the show notes, but but basically an A380. What was it? It was a CRJ or uh, probably CRJ? a CRJ 700. Okay. I think so. It was it was a regional jet, a T-tail regional jet, and the wingtip of the A3. Was it an Air France? I think Air France A380 uh, clipped the the CRJ and just basically turned it 90 degrees. Just I mean, like like it was pretty much you know, no big deal. Like it was nothing, like a top. So yeah, I'd forgotten about that one. Yeah, that's a good one. That was pretty crazy. But no one got hurt. The plane has gone in for inspection. It'll be interesting to see if they decide to repair it or not. I'm sure um, they will. Uh, I have no doubt that aircraft will fly again. Okay. All right. Then I will uh, We'll add this to the list of things we're keeping an eye on and we'll go from Put there. Put an alert for it in the app. Let yes. me know when it flies oh, I again. Already, I already did. Yeah. The TCJMM. It may be a while, uh, but- uh, Yeah. We'll, we'll see. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how quickly they repair the Asiana- uh, A330, which is HL7792. Uh, so two aircraft to keep an eye on. The most recent aircraft collision we had at JFK was that um, that January 4th meltdown we had here where a Kuwait 777 and China Southern 777 had a close call and did some damage. And the Kuwait 777 was at JFK for like 110 days or something like that. Yeah, it, it just left like last week. Yeah, it was there for a substantial period and that was just really damaged to the APU and the tail. Not quite the entire tail being knocked off. So who knows how long this repair takes. Yeah. I mean, a year. We'll say a year and and see if we're if we're if we're wrong well, or, or it's right. At, it happened at Turkish's home base and they do a ton of maintenance there. So if anywhere for it to happen, I'm sure they're happy it was there. Yeah, that, that's true. Let's take a break and we will come back and talk with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren once again. Jeremy is going to come talk to us about some rather interesting vintage aviation advertisements that he's put together and found in, in various sources and, and trawling the, the depths of eBay. So he, he's got some very interesting stuff and I won't spoil it, but there may be rockets involved. So we will talk to him in just a little bit. So stay with us. Welcome back. We are joined once again by Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who is not here to tell us about his travels this time, but is here to tell us about some vintage traveling that he's unearthed in his, we'll call it never-ending quest for airline ephemera. So Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us again and, and welcome back. Yeah, welcome back again, again. Thanks for having me on again, again, again. It's always a pleasure to join the two of you. So you found... This all started because you were just kind of trawling the depths of eBay and came across some rather interesting vintage aviation 
print ads. And the one that, that we really wanted to talk about is one that we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But if you're listening to the podcast, I, I just a word of uh, advice, go to the show notes, if you're not there already, on the Flight Radar 24 blog, because we'll have posted this particular advertisement in the show notes so that you can see it and follow along and know what we're talking about, because it really is a great visual piece of artwork. But I want to start there, because a lot of these vintage ads are just really great pieces of artwork. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of perusing through them a little bit now, and it turns out impulse control with a meager amount of money can do some damage on eBay if you know how to search. And certainly picked up a a hobby of finding old vintage airline ads from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. And the artwork is often the best part. I'm a photographer. I love photos. But I I find that the artwork is often way more compelling because it tells you more of how they want you to see their product and see yourself in it. And I find that particularly interesting. But that's one of the things that that strikes me, especially about the the early advertisements. It's not even so much see yourself in the airplane. It's see the airplane. Because, I mean, all of these, you know, air travel still being introduced. And so you get all of these advertisements that are really just about the airplane, which is so foreign to me for now. Yeah, the, because all, every, these old, all these old ads are about the airplane, not the thing inside the airplane, the airplane. And now every ad you see is, you know, these glorious, you know, seats or, or look, we have Wi-Fi or entertainment or anything like that. Or you don't even see the airplane or airline at all. It's just, you know, like destination marketing. It's we can fly you to, you know, London or Bali or, or wherever. And, and here's a picture of Why are 30-year-old 767 to London? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you can definitely see a progression through the advertisements. And in the 40s and first part had was obviously quite tied to the war and war effort, things like that. Uh, But once you break past 45 and the conclusion of the war, you start to see a lot of ads about the airplane. So you have everything from the bizarre and short-lived Avro jetliner, the C-102, to the DC-6, the 7. You've got the 707, the Lancastrian, Lancastrian, something like that. One of the ill-fated ones that never quite went anywhere. The Comet, DC-8. But you don't really see a a switch heavily into, at least in the ads anyway, into what the airplane can offer until the Comet and the 707 come out. And then you see a lot of time-based ads. So something plugging, I think Pan Am had a six and a half hours to Europe, I assume from New York, which at the time was probably a gain of two or three hours over what uh, had previously been being flown on a, say, a Super 7 or something. And then by the late 60s, you start seeing much more focus on the passenger experience across the board. So some of the early ads from Delta with the Convair 880 and the DC-8 are advertising their club compartment. And uh, certainly there there was no shortage of uh, comparative luxury across the board in some of the early jets. But you, you see that really come out in the late 60s and with the introduction of the 747 Almost every airline is going out of its way to to plug the ads in the onboard experience, which I think also speaks to the trajectory of commercial aviation has, from a technical standpoint, kind of stopped from the 60s. We haven't, with the exception of the Concorde and the short-lived Tupelo 144, we haven't gone faster. The the engine technology is is revolutionary more than it is evolutionary, and, and the same with with aircraft design in general. So that there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of new things 
to plug after that point, other than larger jets and increasingly exotic comforts on board, which of course largely went away with regulation. So go ahead, Jason. At some point, it definitely switched to economics of buying the aircraft, more efficient engines, more efficient cost per, per seat, rather than just our plane is amazing and fast. It went, our plane will get your passengers from A to B for 10% of whatever the other old thing that you were flying was. So big change. Well, and I also think a big part of the, the change in the advertising is that manufacturers kind of stopped advertising to the consumer because people were sold on air travel. I mean, you didn't need to convince anybody. And especially as air travel became more and more affordable, people were going to take a plane anyway. I mean, if you had the money back then, it was you know a ridiculous amount of money to fly across the country. And so you really, I guess you couldn't be choosy about who you were going to fly, but you could be choosy whether or not you were going to fly or not. You know, and whereas now it's, of course, I'm going to take a plane. Why would I take a boat unless that's the whole point of my travel? But, you know, if I'm going to a destination, of course, I'm going to fly. So I think there's a, a big shift there where you get, you know, different who the audience is for the advertisement and who's actually doing any of the advertising. Yeah, definitely. Some of the, the early, again, early introduction of jets in particular, I see this less in the ads, though it's, it's in a few and I see it much more in the welcome aboard packets that they used to make, which might be small booklets, anywhere from five to 20 pages. And they'll explain the safety of jets, the new sounds that they might make, which I think is really interesting that they're having to essentially sell the passenger and comfort the passenger via words on this is a new experience and we need to prepare you for all the questions and concerns that you might have about it. And a lot of those early welcome aboard packets were, were plugging things like how much safer the aircraft was or how much faster and, and all the new comforts on board. But selling the jet was definitely one of them or jet travel. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I never really considered that, you know, even after people bought the ticket, they still needed to be kind of reassured once they were on the plane that, you know, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, it's kind of wild. The consistent, I'll, I'll have to pull up, see if I can get a clip for the, the show notes, but you can look through uh, a couple of old American ones that I've got, and they go into quite a lot of detail about how jets work and how radar works and how that all works together to keep you safe. Well, and I think that goes back to the, you know, every everything new and you're still trying to convince people of, you know, that this is a good way to go. Not so much we need to have people fly on the planes and things like that, but from a safety perspective, but as a commercial perspective, it's interesting that, that the marketing of the safety of air travel starts so early. Yeah, absolutely. But it really picks up, I think, in the 50s and the 60s. Quite a bit. So the ad that got my attention and I said, yeah, we absolutely need to talk to you about. Let's talk about that. Was maybe now. not so safe? Because I, <laughs> I mean, I'll let you describe the ad from Aerojet General Corporation from 1954. A subsidiary of General Tire and Rubber Company, which doesn't tell you much more. But apparently at the time, in the early 50s, Aerojet was working on creating JATO bottles, so jet-assisted takeoff, or otherwise known as a rocket, and strapping them to the bottom of a plane to assist in engine-out operations on short takeoff or heavy aircraft scenario where you wouldn't have enough lift to stay airborne on one engine if the other conked out. And JATO, of course, isn't terribly novel. They were on military aircraft starting in the 40s, early 40s, and there were uh, no shortage after that. They're pretty popular. I think 
Is it the B-47? Everyone can remember that famous photograph of one of the Boeing B-47s getting a Jado bottle so takeoff. Is it's, yeah, it's cool. And it's, but on civil aircraft was pretty unusual, except apparently for Ethiopian Airlines, which got sold into strapping a couple onto the bottom of their Convair 240s for help getting out of the hot and high conditions in Addis Ababa and a couple of the nearby in-country airfields. And so it turns out that they, they did have, from what I can tell, one regular customer, and that was Ethiopian Airlines. And they strapped Jado bottles to the bottom of the jets and or prop planes, rather, and off they went. And this this artwork is great because the ad is basically a, a Convair 240 w- with an engine out and the Jado bottles going as it takes off is kind of the main artwork in, in the ad. Yeah. And the ad specifically says one airline, which we're going to assume is Ethiopian from the picture, using Jado. They leave out the ETH, but the rest yeah, is all there. So Ethiopian. One airline using Jado as standard equipment, assumingly from Aerojet General Corporation, of course, has saved its passenger liners on two occasions following engine failure on takeoff. And that's exactly what the picture shows this Convair taking off with one engine non-functional and the two Jado bottles smoking away behind it. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that they plugged that because Ethiopian, from what I could tell from the research on a a book that the company wrote historically and then some of the online stuff I've dredged up, is Ethiopian used them regardless. They hit the Jado bottles more often than not to get out of Addis Addis Ababa. So it wasn't necessarily, it was obviously safety, but it was primarily also we need to get this thing off the ground, whether it has the other engine going or not. And if the right engine, as in the the ad, happens to fail, all the better that we have rockets, but we needed them anyway. But we're not the only airline to try it. From what I can tell, uh, several Caribbean airlines needed them or tested them anyway, to get FAA certification on short field operations. And they also used it on Convairs in the 50s and 60s. Ethiopians stopped using them in 54. I'll give you a guess as to why, but you could probably guess it. It didn't go super it's a well. Really bad one idea. Bottles, yeah, one of the bottles came off, went through the wing, you know, as one would expect to happen. The plane, from what I can tell, was fine. But I think that was when they decided that Convair 240s were no longer a great idea, and they moved on to DC-6s not long after. Probably smart. But looked it up, and it turns out Metroliners, the little flying pencils there, they were so poorly underpowered, at least the first production runs of them, that they put or had the option to put a little Jado bottle inside the tail cone to help it get off the ground in the event of an engine out. Uh, My understanding is that the... I've looked around in some forums and some Facebook groups, things like that, and the pilots and the mechanics didn't seem to think much of them. If I, uh, one of the pilots on the forum describes it as the Jado bottles were used in case of an engine failure so that Circa and Rescue could find the site of the accident more easily. I mean, I, I just love how disingenuous this ad is in the second paragraph, because of course it's an ad from the 50s, so there are multiple paragraphs, but it says the widely recognized need for standby power will be fulfilled, blah, blah, blah. It was neither widely recognized or actually needed, was it, by anyone ever? Standby power is in all caps, mind you. Standby power, exactly. It was never widely recognized nor needed. I guess they duped a few customers into thinking they actually needed it. 
but come on. Well, no, it, it never did widely pick up at all. From what I could find, like I said, Ethiopian was the only one that used them regularly in any manner, and the rest were just tests. And by and large, aircrafts were sufficiently powered by the end of the 50s that, that they didn't really need them anymore, with the exception of some crazy guy who decided to strap a bunch onto a 727 to get out of Mexico City. And that's something to see, that there's a YouTube video for that, and you should look that up. We, uh, that we will something. post that in the show notes. Yeah, the, the videos. Just to have that available for kind everybody wild, to watch. I, I watched it yesterday, and it, it's kind of remarkable how they do a really, really quick rotation of the nose, and then all of a sudden they, they power on these Jado bottles, and the thing just goes just like straight, pretty much straight up. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have that in the show notes so that we can let people watch that and kind of compare what a, a, a Jado takeoff is versus a normal takeoff. Again, not a good idea because if the not comments a good idea. in this YouTube video are true, they pretty much say, yeah, obviously when you slam a couple rockets on all of a sudden on the belly of an aircraft that wasn't designed to be there, it causes all sorts of nasty metal fatigue and cracks and nasty stuff that you do not want. So they had to reinforce the aircraft with extra aluminum and putting on extra aluminum kind of seems like it would counteract the extra thrust of the Jado bottles. So that's just stupid. Yeah, the, the whole thing seems... That's why it was short-lived. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the ad and it says, you know, 1943, first Jado for military aircraft, 1946, first and only approved for commercial aircraft, 1953, approved as a standby power source, 1954 is the ad. And Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, Ethiopian stopped this in 1954, 55. I mean, so it didn't last very long at all. No, Ethiopian used them for maybe two years, tops. It was when they started going particularly far distance routes, I think Athens, and they needed the extra boost to get out of the to get out of Addis when they were particularly heavy on fuel. And that route started in 53 or 54. So it, it didn't last particularly long before it went wrong. Yeah, I mean, it seems like such a thing to be advertising, though. It's like, strap rockets to your plane, and and all of this copy goes into trying to sell this idea. And Jason, you brought this up earlier, and, and it's something that, that I always find fascinating about vintage ads is that there's paragraphs of text on all of these ads. I mean, compared to ads nowadays, there's so much copy. There are, are so many, you know, just so much narrative in all of these ads, it's fascinating across all of these vintage airline ads. It differs quite a bit from today's video montage with absolutely horrible crap rock in the background. I mean, I will take a, a paragraph or two on the beauty of the 747, you know, versus the the montage and the the awful music any day. Ugh. I mean, you typically see that nonsense in military more than you do in commercial. Because I, I guess you can't sell to the military without terrible, awful music. That, that must be a rule somewhere. But what do you even see these days for commercial stuff? Really, just uh, not much. I mean, for like print ads? Yeah, or print ads or even video or any ads for new aircraft. Do you really see anything oh, for, aircraft? for the A350? No, I, mean, no. No, I, I don't think you see very much at all for You, you might see for ads for the company no. as a whole. Like you'll see an ad for Boeing, but they make everything from satellites to – who knows what else, but you don't see aircraft advertised almost at all ever. 
it drops off really heavily. It, it's almost, it, I've had a very hard time finding anything on the 767 or later. Airbus has always been notorious hard. I think that I've only managed to scrounge up five or six ads from Airbus period ever. But certainly after 1980, they drop precipitously. So I've never really seen anything or very little on uh, 7, 5, 6, 7, even the 8, 7 is hard to find. You, you pretty much need to to get a trade magazine like Flight Global or or one of the others to to find any any of that type of ad. And the only reason I have any after 1990 is when I went to Farnborough and took all of the things home so I could cut the ads out and then have them 50 years from now. And even then I only have like six. Yeah, it's really impressive to see how big of a shift there's been. I mean, you know, part of it's obviously the you know, the decline of print advertising writ large. But I think a lot of it goes to the fact that, you know, airplanes aren't, they're not new anymore. You know, so I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if, and a huge if, any of the, you know, new supersonic things are, you know, ever take off or like space travel, you know, space tourism takes off, what those advertisements will look like. Because that'll be the, like the first new advertising, you know, in the aerospace industry in, in a very long time. So that that'll be something to look forward to. And then, you know, we can clip all of those ads and then when we're doing a podcast in, in fifty years from now, we can look back on, you know, on the, the Virgin Galactic print ads, if there are any. I hope to have them if they do. <laughs> Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for joining us once again with, with some really cool stuff. If you find something crazier than and strapping rockets to a Convair two forty, I want to hear about it. Well, I think that's gonna be a high bar to hit, but I'll be sure to let you know. You can do it. We have faith. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day, guys. And we are back having uh, strapped rockets to ourselves and launched ourselves high into the sky. I don't recommend Uh, doing that. No, no. But I do want to... To find somebody who will strap some Jado bottles to to a modern aircraft, and I do want to see that. That'll be I'm fun. Pr- probably not going to find anybody. No, I really again don't recommend that. So let's talk about. Uh, you made it back from France, and you went home for twelve hours. Then you hopped on a JetBlue flight to Seattle and did what? Well, I got stuck in traffic for a bit, but then I ran all the way up to Everett to Boeing's facility. For the delivery ceremony of Air Italy's, really, Qatar's first 737 MAX aircraft. Uh, This was the the 738 MAX was an order that Qatar had placed a a little while back. But due to, let's say, external forces in the Middle East making the environment in Qatar non-conducive to expanding their fleet... This aircraft is now going to Air Italy, which Qatar took, I think, a 49% minority stake in, but they're pretty much uh, controlling what happens with Air Italy these days, and they're completely refleeting it. So the Maxes will make up the, I guess, the regional fleet, the not domestic, but the regional European fleet. They will, I think, just in a week or two, start operations with a330s out to JFK in Miami, um, again, with least uh, Qatar A330s, and eventually they will get 787s, which can 
Can you guess where the aircraft are coming from? Those are going to come from Qantas. You're wrong. It's Qatar. I w- see. I was so close. It was a Q. I knew yeah, it was a Q. Yeah, you got the first letter right. <sighs> so Qatar is. It, there's no illusions here. They are in this to make money, and they're in it to crush Alitalia, which may or may not happen. I don't know. Nobody knows what happens with Alitalia at this point. But they. This is. I would say this is Akbar Al Baker's, the CEO of Qatar. This is his side hustle, I guess, wanting to. <laughs> <laughs> wanting to to get into the Italian aviation game, and if we can look back not very long ago and see what Eddie had tried with Alitalia and all their investments around, it failed miserably. I don't know why Qatar thinks they can do it better, but good luck to them. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I don't quite understand why anyone would want to be getting into the Italian aviation industry at this point. But if we're making an argument in favor of it, I guess it's. Alitalia is so bad at this point that it's kind of on the verge of collapse and kind of might be being generous. It's not going anywhere. The Italian government was not letting Alitalia disappear overnight. They're not going to disappear, but what I'm saying is they're not in, a, in they're not in strong financial shape and they're not necessarily the best option, mm-hmm. I, I guess, is is what yeah, you know Qatar's thinking is. But not being in strong uh, financial shape has never impacted Alitalia in any way. That's a fair point. Yeah. Anyway, so, I don't know. So I, we, we were checking out their first 737 MAX. The, the livery is quite nice on the outside. The inside, I've actually never been on a 737 MAX before, so that was my first time on one. And surprise, surprise, it's pretty damn similar to the 737NG. If you're inside it, there is not a damn way to tell you're on a MAX aside uh, and not an NG. Um, the engines look a little different, but it has the same sky interior, same seat, same sidewall. There's there's literally no difference for the passenger on a Max instead of an NG. The seats were nice. They were pretty roomy. It's fairly basic though. There's at least power outlets and stuff, but it didn't exactly scream luxury. So I'm a little confused as to why Qatar thinks passengers will book away from the airlines they know and are used to in Europe why they would start booking Air Italy, but that's up to their marketing team to figure out, I guess. Well, I mean, Meridiana is not new. I mean, no, Meridiana is an obscure Which is what Air Italy was before. Yeah, uh, that's a good point to make. Air Italy is Meridiana in disguise. Meridiana is an irrelevant, tiny little niche airline that flies some European stuff and some long haul stuff from like Sicily and and other odd uh, oddball long haul destinations in Italy out to the US but they're they're nearly irrelevant 99% of people can probably have never heard of them and would probably never book them but they fly some interesting routes but those interesting routes are going away and now they're going to fly to like Milan and Rome and they're basically going to be Alitalia at this point Alitalia but Air Italy not Alitalia which I mean, I guess is not confusing at all. If you've never heard of of either of those, and deciding which one is which, that that'll be an interesting prospect. Too. Right. So they're actually bringing a name back. Meridiana used to be or had absorbed another airline called Air Italy, I believe, at at some point a number of years ago, and then at some point they were named Eurofly, and then they went back to Meridiana. Now they're going back to Air Italy. So the name is not new. It's a revived name, but I don't think it really has any major name recognition. 
one of the interesting things in all of this is that they'll now have three liveries flying. They have the the new Air Italy livery. They have the standard Meridiana Air livery, and they took delivery a while ago of one of the old Eastern Airline. Well, not the new old Eastern Airlines seven three sevens. So they have it's in Eastern Airlines livery, but it says Meridiana, which I, which I think is. Not important at all, but just one of those interesting things, I think. Right. It's fun to see this whole plan kind of come around and take shape because when Qatar first bought their stake in Meridiana, I was like, what the hell are they thinking? No, Meridiana is so freaking irrelevant that they're throwing their money away, but it's kind of an interesting play. So we'll see where this goes over its uh, due course. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what Qatar's up to. Let's talk about what Emirates is up to because they're doing something, well, the opposite. They're parking planes. Yeah, a bunch of, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a bunch of A380s and and 777s are being parked at uh, DWC, which is the other Dubai airport that isn't quite in operation yet. It's about two dozen aircraft in total. So they're, they're blaming pilot shortages, is it? So every year around Ramadan, they park a couple of aircraft just from demand perspective. And they've done this in, in years past and things like that. But this year, they're they're saying that it's they're suffering from a pilot short of between 100 and 150 pilots. Tim Clark, the, the CEO of Emirates, says that he told Bloomberg that this is something that he foresees resolving itself by fall, so September, October. I'm not sure what he meant by that. And there was no discussion of that in, in the article that I read of, of what problems would be solved by September. But at this point, they're saying that they're, they're suffering from a pilot shortage of between 100 and 150 pilots, which, you know, the parking a couple dozen aircraft in a fleet of, you know, 250, 275 aircraft is, it's nothing to sneeze at, I don't think. No, the Middle East is going through an unexpected bout of trouble. Qatar has the whole blockade or embargo thing against them. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's it's not great times for them. Emirates is parking aircraft because they have a pilot shortage and Etihad is kind of kind of in the worst shape of all of them. I guess they they are not looking great. There's all sorts of rumors about their their massive aircraft orders that they have in place being scooped up by other airlines because they they just don't have the need for these aircraft anymore. I I don't know what happens to them, but it's it's not good yeah, times it's... for the Middle Eastern airlines. And you said unexpected, but it's not entirely unexpected. I would say the Emirates one is unexpected, but not so much sure, Etihad. Sure, I mean, Etihad's the – they've. I mean, since 2016 when they had that dismals, I think a, a reasonable way to put it, their, their financial performance. And dismal might be being generous to say. And so, I mean, f- since then, it's, it, you know, what are they going to do with all of these aircraft on order? And they've been scaling back to some pretty major destinations. They've been scaling back capacity and changing. I mean, just this week, they reduced their Melbourne flights to two-class 787 down from a, a three-class 777ER or 300ER. So, I mean, it, you know, it's it's little things like that. They've just kind of been pairing back and pairing back and pairing back. Yeah. So, yeah I, I've never flown Etihad, but I feel like I should hurry up and maybe do that before it could be too late. <laughs> So are you are you going to go out and spend the what is it twenty five thousand dollars per trip for the I always forget which one's which the residence or the apartment or the the answer is no the balcony or I don't know. <laughs> the amphitheater no the amphitheater yes no I will not be doing that okay if you did I mean I, I would expect that we would spend some time on that so if you want to I won't stop you nope I also won't help you pay for it nope nope nope. 
<laughs> so Qatar's doing their thing in Area Literally. Emirates is parking some planes. Hopefully by September they say it'll be better, but we'll see about that. Who knows what Etihad's doing? Enter Michael O'Leary, who this week gave a rather fascinating interview. And Jason, you you were much more in tune with that, so I'll let you kind of kind of summarize all of that. Yeah, so it was a good long interview, like twelve minutes, I think, where Ryanair's CEO kind of spilled all all the things that was on his mind. Though, so they talked about fuel prices, which are are going up. They're at something like eighty dollars a barrel now, and how that affects. Tickets, which uh, airfares seem to lag 12 months behind oil going up. So even though oil prices are up, airfare is still kind of flat. Talked about the purchase of, of Lotta Motion and how the remnants of Air Berlin became Nikki Lauda's airline, which is sort of being absorbed by Ryanair. And they foresee possibly having up to or more than 100 Airbus aircraft in their fleet in years to come, really sparking conversations with Airbus, which is something Ryanair does not have currently. They're a complete 737-800 operator. They have something like 400 to 500 aircraft. And to see Airbus introduced into Ryanair's fleet will be really interesting because that's not something they've ever dabbled in. What else did they talk about? Uh, Norwegian, how <laughs> Norwegian's not profitable at $40 a barrel oil. How the hell are they going to be profitable at $80 a barrel? It, what is IA? Poor Norwegian. They find a way to, to shoehorn themselves into, I think, every episode we do. It, it's, it's something. We don't look out for ways to beat up on Norwegian, but I, I just, I mean, the, the, but he's right. Anyway. If they don't make money no, he, he, with, absolutely. with uh, oil half the price it is now, they're not certainly not going to make it then. And O'Leary basically said "I it's going to be either they, they go bust one day and close up shop or IAG buys them out and, and really keeps some capacity. And at this point, he's probably right. Norwegian's unsustainable. The, the 787 groundings is certainly a kick in the ass at the time. They really don't need it. But I, their future doesn't look great, according to uh, Ryanair's CEO, which may just be him positioning, who knows, to, to lower their value to make their own takeover bid. That would be fascinating. I would be thoroughly surprised by that. But at this point, I've almost lost my capacity to be surprised by anything at this point. Well, I mean, uh, just because of- Norwegian has a ton of 737s that would fit nicely into Ryanair's fleet. They could lease out the 787s and- uh, be done with it. So maybe that was all just a plot to keep IAG out of the running. Who took a 5% stake, a hostile stake? Um, maybe not hostile, but Norwegian had no say in the matter. Right, right. I mean, I'm sitting over here, you know, staring at a checkerboard and you're playing nine-dimensional chess and I appreciate that. I'm not playing. I have no part in this. I, I'm just, I, I get to watch. <laughs> I'm the guy watching the two old men in the park play chess. And and that's that's a good place to be. So Ryanair has 443 737 800s. They have one 737-700. Ah, but that's a BBJ. No, I think this one's the one they use for training. I mean, I don't oh. know what the cabin's configured out. Don't they have a BBJ? A, no, they've got a couple Learjets that that's they fly around. But those, are most, those are, but those are mostly for the mechanics. Right. I mean, very interesting to me that they own those aircraft. That's a whole uh, other podcast to, topic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so the interview is – Generally, 
just kind of all over the place, which I thought was, and it was long too. Yeah, it was a long segment from Dubai of all places. I like, I don't know why they were in Dubai, but. Well, I mean, maybe he's going to buy a Etihad. Ooh, pot twist. <laughs> this is how rumors get started. We'll put a link to it because it's definitely worth checking out. For, if nothing else, then, then getting O'Leary's impression on the – because it seemed to me in this particular interview, he was being less Michael O'Leary. Yeah. He was, if that he makes was any being sense. less of a you – know, Not a nice person. going to choose my words carefully here. Yes. Not a nice I'll person. I'll go with what you said there. But he seemed very down to earth, very business centric. I mean, because usually when he comes on, he he's trying to you know introduce pay for use toilets or standing seats or something utterly ridiculous to generate free publicity for the, for his airline for Ryanair. But but this seemed like you know he was answering questions and and giving thoughtful answers. And I mean, obviously, for someone who runs such a successful airline, I shouldn't be surprised that he has the capacity to do this. It just surprised me that he did it. Right. So we'll put a link to the interview, and it's worth the time. Um, you know, if you're after you finish listening to this podcast, of course, if you're still looking for something, it's certainly worth your time. Let us close out the show with some quick hits on things that either are patently ridiculous or follow-ups from the other stuff that we talked to. Oh, but we forgot in the beginning of the show when we were doing our uh, our incident reports plural, the most recent one, which was the Saudi Arabian Airlines A330 operated by Owner Air, landed in, diverted to Jeddah without its nose gear uh, deployed. And there is video, which we will link to in the show notes, but you can imagine what the video looks like. It's a uh, a plane and lots of sparks. But everybody was okay. They deplaned on the runway uh, through the slides. Everyone was fine. Once again, the the only injuries that were sustained were due from the evacuation itself. Yeah, and uh, a consistent refrain that we hear. So that's good in a sense, I guess. But they picked it up off the runway today with some airbags and a jack. And so now it's, I guess, got towed off and it'll get repaired. I saw pictures of the – it was basically just looked like uh, it needed some new gear doors. And well, probably some maintenance to see why the gear didn't come down in the first place. But, you know, that too. Yeah. Air Belgium got its Russian overflight permission, finally, that we talked about. Was it last episode or two episodes ago? One of them. Air Belgium had been uh, acquiring a a couple A340s. And was trying – yes. and, And trying to operate to Asia from Belgium. And they couldn't because they didn't have Russian overflight permission. They finally got it. So they're going to Asia. Good luck to them. And last but, well, really least, Qantas hitched a Tesla Model X to set a a Guinness Book of World Records for the heaviest thing towed by an all-electric production vehicle. I can't tell you how little I care about this. I say it only because the photography was good, the videography was good, and it's worth maybe 45 seconds of your time. But... I but did that's like what happened. The, the video, just the audio of the video was just the noise of the helicopter filming it. Well, and I think that's important because oftentimes you get this like stirring music. And I think we talked about this before where we get this ridiculous stirring music that no one needs. Yeah. So no, nobody needs yeah. that pounding crap metal that uh, there you go. You hear so much. Oh, I have a cool thing that I forgot to mention. Well, there we go. So just yesterday I was out to out having lunch. My office is right by the East River in Lower Manhattan. 
and I noticed two helicopters flying really close together. We're right down by the the downtown heliport by Wall Street, which is not out of the ordinary. But I noticed that one helicopter was flying sideways and had a big camera pod in the nose, which is unusual. And the other helicopter was something I didn't quite recognize. And I'm looking up and I'm thinking, huh, I bet Mike Eisler is in that aircraft filming that other aircraft. And no more than 10 seconds later, who do you think I get a, a direct message from on Twitter? <laughs> did you tell Mike I said hello? I did. And it turned right. out to be they were filming air-to-air footage of a new Airbus prototype H-160 helicopter um, doing some sort of North American tour and just so happened that they flew right over my head and it just happened to be that my friend was on the other helicopter doing the filming. So just wanted to mention that. I saw that they were doing the the tour. I didn't know they had made it to New York because they that's the one they had boxed up, I think, into an Antonov AN-124 and flown it into Las Vegas for the helicopter expo uh, a couple months ago. And then they were flying around the country. So I, I guess they made it to New York for some filming. So that's cool. Yeah. I don't know much about the helicopters, but I know that thing was super loud and super cool looking. I couldn't recognize it. But then I followed uh, Airbus HC underscore USA guys get a better Twitter handle. But there's some information there on it. And it's it was just really cool to kind of see that while I'm outside having lunch. Not I mean, you know, much better than the, you know, the normal pigeons or seagulls. Well, typically when we eat outside, we just sit there watching the heliport because these things, these helicopters come in and leave every 10 seconds. And tomorrow I think we'll actually be um, – a particularly interesting day because uh, the president will be in town, so we'll see all sorts of Ospreys and Apaches and who knows what else on the heliport. Do they land the president there too? Oh, yeah. The president comes in on uh, Marine One and the media and some support comes in on the Ospreys these days, which are super freaking loud and big. They really are. For that heliport. They really are. When I mean, when President Obama was coming to Chicago, they would fly right over between O'Hare and the, the parking lot at Soldier Field where they had the staging area. They would fly right over my house and they were so loud. Yeah. And actually – on the heliport in downtown, they actually don't do a vertical takeoff because I'm pretty sure the downforce would destroy the helicopter pier. So they actually do kind of like a rolling, almost like a, huh. a, a mini version of a of an aircraft, or an airplane where they, they take a rolling start and kind of just take off horizontally. <laughs> it's a tilt rotor, so it can do that. I think those things are absolutely cool. Yeah. But yeah, but they are so loud. Yeah. They're insane aircraft. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to episode 32 of AvTalk. As always, if you have suggestions or comments, criticisms, you want to tell us something about aviation or, or not, uh, podcast at fr24.com or send us a tweet at FlightRadar24 or Facebook as well, FlightRadar24. We've got some good stuff coming up in the next couple episodes. We're going to talk with – well, we're not going to talk with him, but Ken Hoke will be back with another glossary term. 
in either the next episode or the episode after. When we ask people to do things, we understand that they actually, you know, fly for a living. So Ken's been doing a lot of flying and keeping busy with that. So we're going to have that in the next couple episodes. And we're going to have uh, have some other good stuff as well. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to talk with uh, Nate Turner, who works at, at Honeywell as well. We talked with Joe about flying the planes. We're going to talk with Nate about what goes into the planes and some cool stuff that, that he's been working on. And so if anyone has any suggestions or anything like that for future episodes, just email us, podcast at fr24.com, and we'll be happy to check out your suggestions. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz, thank you for listening. <laughs>